This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by support from our partner, the Calliopeia Foundation. Calliopeia honors all life as sacred and works to heal today's issues at their root causes. Calliopeia partners with many projects around a common vision for a future built with love, reverence, and responsibility for our shared home. We are so grateful for Calliopeia's generous support to bring so many inspiring projects to life and for making our show possible every week. Hey for the Wild community, Ayana here. I want to take a moment to thank the city of Bend, Oregon for generously supporting our work. The Deschutes River winds through the town of Bend and is home to rainbow trout, steelhead, chinook, and sockeye salmon, which are being co-restored by the Wasco, Tanino, and Paiute tribes. Historically, dip netting has been prominent along the Deschutes to harvest fish and is a technique still used today. Over millennia, the water draining from the Cascade Range has carved stunning canyons and rock sculptures along the body of this river, renowned for white water rafting. If you visit Bend, we invite you to take the time to visit the water and meditate on the stories it holds. At For the Wild, we're passionate about connecting with water, land, and supporting local economies. We're honored to be collaborating with Bend to spread the word about Pledge for the Wild, a group of mountain towns that support responsible tourism through the preservation of land. Consider supporting and visiting one of my favorite destinations, Bend, Oregon, and help protect the land by giving back at pledgewildbend.com. What happens when we allow our work to really fill us with this deep, deep pleasure and deep joy and deep gratification? And what happens when we get out of this white supremacist paradigm of capitalism and productivity? And like, what happens when our work can feel good to us? Welcome to part two of my conversation with Dr. Pavani Moray where we'll be digging deeper into the topics of pleasure and embodiment, wild love, and relational belonging. Pavani Murray, pronoun P, is a somatic sex therapist and ancestral lineage healing practitioner in private practice in San Francisco. Pavani works with individuals and couples who wish to resolve the past, inhabit their bodies and their pleasure, and speak their desires. Pavani is also the founder of Wellsium, an online sexuality and intimacy school committed to personal and planetary liberation. Pavani hosts a podcast called Bespoken Bones, Ancestors at the Crossroads of Sex, Magic, and Science. The podcast is released every new and full moon and addresses topics of transgenerational trauma, erotic wellness, and ancestral support. As a queer trans witch, Pavani walks the glitter path of dancing bones, ridiculous delight, and old magic. Well, thank you for coming back on the show. Our conversation 
it really moved me and being an activist for you know a good chunk of time at this point and fighting resource extraction projects and campaigning and all this stuff and feeling like wow we're not gonna turn this boat around we're not actually doing the things that five years ago I thought we were going to do and then coming to this place of being like wow this is actually the healing is really about relationships and it's not about these other things that I thought it was not to say I'm gonna stop fighting resource extraction projects but it's so much more personal than that and so having this conversation has felt really regenerative for me and clarifying I guess and and also very comforting because it's just like oh okay I can land here I can land in this conversation with you and and it feels real and it feels like we're actually talking about these huge pieces that are really stopping us from being able to show up as allies and earth defenders in a way that I hope we can be one day as even if it's only 3% of us, you know, I'm not hoping for all all of us, I think what 3% to start a revolution or something. So I just wanted to start with that moment of gratitude for you. Thanks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I appreciated our conversation yesterday as well. I'm also thinking about what it means to investigate the inner spaces between the living and the dead within a culture that propagates death while simultaneously seeding discomfort within the realms of death, darkness, the mystical, and the unseen. So I'm wondering, how does the process of journeying into the deep histories of our ancestors overlap with a reckoning around our mortality, a reclamation of death, or or even a greater healing of the natural cycle of life? It's my sense that there's a comfort when we connect with our ancestors, that there's a a comfort in knowing that we will be welcomed when we die. And that, you know, I, I think a lot about this idea of that we're the ones right now, you know, and that I'm just thinking about like when we were in our 20s, I don't know if you ever felt like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with my life? What's my purpose, right? And it seems like such a singular question. It seems like, oh, it's about me and this body and in this life. And in some ways it is, but in some ways it's also a continuation of whatever is moving through the lineage, right? It's, it's that the lineage is about something. And so when we're the ones right now, it's, we're the ones doing the work right now for the sake of the lineage, for the sake of whatever the purpose of this lineage is, right? And that our descendants will, of blood and of hearts will, will follow after us and will We'll take up those those threads of the work, even if it looks really, really different, right? Even if their manifestation of it is really different. And so, like for me, when I start to hold it in that way of I'm just the one right now, I'm part of this greater thing. Death is not finite. It's not a uh, an ending. Rather, it's um, an initiation into just a different state of being, in which I get to participate in life in a different way, right? I I think about how I say prayers for, I have kids and so I say prayers for my kids all the time. And I say prayers for their kids who aren't here yet and maybe they'll never have kids, but like any ones who come after, I'm saying those prayers for. And I know because I'm doing this and because it, it spontaneously just started, right? Like we all, we think about this, like that the ones who came before me said those prayers for me, even though they didn't know that I would ever exist. And yeah, so there's just this comfort 
in holding this kind of worldview on it, I think, of this cosmology of just being part of something that continues on and on. And, and so we we feel the ones kind of how we orient in Western culture is that the past is at our back and the future is in front of us. And so we feel the ones behind us and we feel the ones in front of us. And it becomes less personal in certain ways, you know, of this question about like, what's my purpose? Like you might not even, like I, I was, let me just say, I was, I was in the shower. This was maybe a year ago. I was in the shower and I was, I was asking my ancestors. I was like, really like folks, am I, am I doing the thing? Am I like, what am I supposed to do? Is there anything else that you want me to do? And they were like, Oh, you already did it. But I was like, well, do I get to know what it is? And they were like, Nope. <laughs> you know, and it was just kind of like, Oh, okay. So there is, there's meaning to to our lives, whether or not we, you know, figure it out and figuring it out being that like kind of intellectual concept. And so like, yeah, I mean, I think that death just becomes held in a different way. And, you know, just anticipating kind of that that welcoming of like, oh, I'm just in a different state now. Like I just moved to North Carolina. I'm in a different state now. And oh, I just died. I'm in a different state now. And I had the privilege of interviewing my friend Colleen eight days before she died. She knew she was going to die. And she was like, yeah, I'm not scared. You know, I'm not scared of of this dying thing. I'm scared of not having lived. And kind of like the the comings and the goings of being incarnate and and being embodied and then being disincarnate and, and being disembodied in a, you know, not in the like trauma way, but in the like spirit way. Yeah. So I just kind of hold it as just in that, you know, in the, oh, I guess the other metaphor I want to talk about is forests. And this will mm. probably resonate with you of like how necessary death is for forests, right? That the nutrients that when a tree or when a plant dies, how they return those to the soil and how that becomes the nourishment for the next generation of life. Like it's just so cyclical. And yeah, I um, I hold it that, you know, while death is a mystery, it's it's natural and normal. And we can learn to really honor that, you know, that while we're in these bodies, we have these bodies and also trust that as we decompose and disintegrate and become one with the earth again, like that the earth of our bodies like goes back to our final lover. There's not this finite quality, right? It's only finite if we, if we hold ourselves as separate and other than. Mm, I was feeling into that so much and Something that I've learned from Stephen Jenkinson, who we've had a few times on the show, who wrote a book called Die Wise, is that in order to die well, we have to live well. And we have to be not necessarily preparing for death, but in a way, it is a type of preparation for when we transition into something else and how our relationships and the way that we live each day actually does affect the way that we transition into death. And that was something that was really, I don't know if shocking is the right word, but goodness, just surprising to me because I'd never thought of it in that way. But I'd like to explore more of your thinking around pleasure, sexual wellness, and the erotic. And there's been a surge of conversation within our communities on these topics. And I think it might be useful if you shared a little bit more about how you defined and understand the quote erotic and how we can understand pleasure both within and beyond the realm of sex? Oh, such good questions. Yeah. I mean, really when I, 
try to put a put a word definition on the erotic because it's a felt sense thing. It's a communion thing, right? Um, it's hard to put words on it, but really the, I think the best word for it is aliveness, right? The, the current of life. And when we're really exquisitely aware of, you know, all of the life that's happening in us at every single moment, right? That we're made up of, I don't know, I can't remember how many billion cells, some enormous number of cells and each one of them is alive. And has its own job, has its own purpose, has its own life cycle. And there's all these like processes of life happening on the cellular level, right? As a cell is born, a cell goes through its whole spiel, respires, reproduces, ultimately dies and is reabsorbed or, you know, passed through. And, and so when I think about the erotic, I'm like, oh, how can I start to pay attention to feeling that? to feeling into the life that's actually happening in this body. This like all the, the collection of beings that is this body. And that it's a, it's a force, Eros is a force that is a current, maybe it's a better word because I don't like the word force, but like a current that's, it requires our attention. It's, I mean, it's happening, right? Like a river is flowing, whether or not we're looking at it. And it's the same with Eros of, of it's there, whether or not we're paying attention to it, but the way to know it, the way to really know the erotic is, is through the attention and through the felt sense. And I discern it from the sexual and that they're, they're interwoven and they're connected, but they're not the same thing, right? There's so many ways to weave the erotic into your daily life. You might not just be able to have sex all day, right? But you can be erotic all day long and you can be feeling and feeling your aliveness and feeling deeply all day long. And when your attention wanders, you can bring it back to, to your feeling. And and so that the uniqueness of that sensation of, of really acknowledging the erotic, the, the field of the erotic, it's really profound and it's like sourced both in those processes of life, but it's also sourced in all of the processes of life, right? This is the thing where we can get really turned on looking at the full moon or, or watching the winds blow through the top of the trees to the leaves. Or I just, I love that dance actually of like, I think about, I was dancing in the mission in San Francisco a while ago and it's like, you know, it's gritty, it's urban and there's not a lot of nature and and I was looking out the window and there were these there's these palm trees that go all the way down Mission Street and they're like really, really tall. So it's just like this long, thin trunk. And at the top there's this kind of burst of foliage. And I was watching the winds move through those through those leaves, those palm leaves, those fronds, I guess they're called. And I was like, oh, like that's sexy. Like it's not just sexy to me because I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, that whole thing that's happening between them, it was like watching two lovers, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, oh, the wind is tickling those fronds and the fronds are combing the winds. And it's like this reciprocal relationship. And I'm just, I'm getting to watch porn right here. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I would say that that's kind of, that's how I hold the erotic. It's just the current of life that we can tune our attention towards. And pleasure is... It's just this boon that we get to enjoy, right? It's it is about enjoyment. It's about savoring. It's about delight. It's about feeling good. And one of the things that can happen with trauma is that we feeling good cannot feel good anymore. It can feel bad or it can feel unsafe. And so I also want to just be really clear that pleasure is a very personally defined experience. I can't tell you what your pleasure is, you know, it's, it's yours and, and you can't tell me what mine is. It's, it's really 
you know, what feels good, what feels safe enough. It can be uh, a kind of quiet, savoring, enjoying, and it can also be like more exciting, just depending on the the chemical experience that our nervous system's having at that moment, the kind of the unique combination of um, excitement and enjoyment or arousal and calming or, you know, sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. But, but I think that I also think about pleasure as something that is really healing and that deliberately allowing pleasure, whatever that is for you, whatever your definition is, deliberately allowing pleasure to infiltrate, you know, to be this like, agent provocateur inside your body of, of like really allowing the pleasure to come in is it's the antithesis of this unworthiness syndrome that plagues us right in the West of, of disconnect and, and feeling like we're too much or we're not enough or we're unworthy of goodness and love and blessing. And so like, yeah. And, and I just want to note that the, like the ancestral practices can really help with this. I think about, I talk with my ancestors a lot in the shower and what a miracle is like hot water comes out of the wall in my house. That's a miracle, you know? And so I'm like, I get in the shower and I'm like, oh, you guys feel this, this is so good. It feels so good. And, you know, that kind of pleasure of finding finding what what calls you to spirit, you know, what opens your heart, what fills you with delight, what makes you feel free and spontaneous. Those are kind of the the ways that I hold pleasure. And just that if our movements, I think our movements are often really serious. We're committed to the good work. I made a film a few years ago called Holy Milf, which was a mm. queer, ecosexual, erotic ritual invocation to the elements film. And uh, I was showing it and um, to a bunch of activists. And one of the folks there was like, yeah, that's great, Pavani, but forest defending, you know, that's what we have to do. It's really important. I was like, yeah, but this is the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's just through a different lens. It's what happens when we allow our work to really fill us with this deep, deep pleasure and deep joy and deep gratification. And what happens when we get out of this white supremacist paradigm of capitalism and productivity and like what happens when our work can feel good to us. I was looking down the road at a lily hundred miles past the end of the highway In my mind their leaves were all swaying together their feet down under the water And I wanted the chorus to join in Lay my mind under that cotton wool Thank you. 
Especially for those of us who are activists, for those of us who are really enraptured by the work, it's hard work. It's challenging on our bodies, on our minds. And to be able to find ways of feeling pleasure, feeling joy in the work, it honestly feels mandatory to continue doing it for the long haul. And I also loved what you said about the erotic for those of us who can't have sex all day long, that it's nice to be able to know that we can still tap into that energy field. It doesn't have to be sexual. It can be something that's enlivening in a way because we have bodies and we have feelings and how to work with that within ourselves. And I don't think it has to be something that is projected onto others. And I think that can be where things can get messy. We can hold the erotic within ourselves and and within the earth body it feels so enlivening so i'm super happy that you spoke to that and also i wanted to in response read this quote by audrey lord from uses of the erotic quote that self-connection shared is a measure of the joy which i know myself to be capable of feeling a reminder of my capacity for feeling And that deep and irreplaceable knowledge of my capacity for joy comes to demand from all of my life that is to be lived within the knowledge that such satisfaction is possible and does not have to be called marriage, nor God, nor an afterlife, end quote. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, (laughs) to, to deepen this discussion, I want to turn towards a post that Pinar of Queer Nature recently shared. Importantly, naming the way pleasure remains relegated within the realm of the human. They write, quote, Our ecological kin awaits our inquiries of consent, our listening, our engagement on this earth with them, end quote. So with these words in mind, I'm excited to think about how the erotic might expand our capacity for connection with place, or perhaps how we might re-engage with earth as a loved one, a sacred relationship that is tended, savored, and pleasurable. And you kind of started to speak to that, I think, with watching the branches, but I'd love to go into this deeper. Yeah, the ecosexual. Yeah, I um, I want to start just by sharing a helpful tip to combat sexual socialization of like, how do we be with the erotic in consensual ways, but also not allow consent to become dogmatic, right? And so we're, like you said, it, you named it, you said we're, we're socialized to project our erotic at, right? Like the object of my attraction, the object of my adoration. And so I propose that we can be erotic with, we don't have to be erotic at, right? So, and it's how I experience it somatically is directional. So that there's, um, when we're projecting at, when we're taking our arrows and we're projecting an at someone and, and landing it on them or on something, right? Whether we have consent or not, that there's a, there's a kind of a linear directionality about that. And for folks who have penises, like that's often forward, right? And, and, and it can be very genital centric and it can be very, intrusive sometimes, right? So what is it to be erotic with? And and this is for both human and other than human and 
I think is helpful when thinking about like, how do I, how do I be consensual with my arrows everywhere I go in the world? You know, if like, how do I be erotic with is like, oh, I can somatically, if I put my attention on it, I can take that erotic energy that might be really genitally focused and I can spread it out. I can spread it out to my whole body and I can spread it out behind me. I can spread it out above me. I can spread it out below me. I can root it into the earth. You know, that there's like, that I can just become like this beautiful (laughs) energy ball of arrows, you know, that's, that's not trying to land it on, you know, not trying to convince or persuade or negotiate. It's just like, hey, here I am in, in my beautiful arrows. I'm just, I'm feeling the pleasure that's available even without any kind of stimulation, right? I can turn my attention to that. I can, I can get nuanced enough to learn to do that. And then it's kind of a non-issue, like the the consent thing, because I'm not trying to do anything with it. There's no agenda, right? I'm not trying to get to a goal. I'm just hanging out with my erotic, being with my sexy. And I, I, yeah, I do this when I'm out in the world all the time, you know, out with people, out with nature, you know, it's just, it's a different paradigm, I think, of, of really stepping into like, you know, everywhere I go, I'm erotic and it's never trying to do a thing, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. So then you asked me the question. I totally <laughs> ripped off of that. So you asked me about ecosexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first, I mean, I want to acknowledge Annie Sprinkle and uh, Beth Stevens for their vast contribution to the paradigm around ecosexuality. I think it goes back again to what we were we were talking about when we were talking about sacred sites and how to approach the and this this consensual piece is around that around it's a different way of inhabiting our soma when we decide that our sensuality or sexuality isn't just limited to other humans, right? When we're like, oh, I am going to have an erotic experience with this body of water, this river. I'm going to have an erotic experience with this tree, right? It's, it's again, it's that deep listening. And one of the cool things that I have found is that it's pretty responsive. Like you can actually ask and be like, hey, okay to give you a hug tree and things will happen like the wind will blow or the needle will fall or you know this stuff happens and and i think it's just polite also <laughs> like it's a good protocol of just kind of getting out of extraction mindset and into collaborative mindset right of just like asking like oh hey i had i was on a walk in my neighborhood yesterday hey tomato my neighbors had tomatoes in the yard can i eat you like is that okay you know it's like yeah cool great um, and then being okay to, you know, you know, it's a muscle. You have to build that trust of like listening, but then hearing no is also okay, right? Like, oh, cool. You're not into it today. And also like reciprocity, you know, sacred mm-hmm. reciprocity about the give back. When I was a baby witch, somebody trained me of, oh, if you if you take something, make sure you leave something. Mm-hmm. Offer some pee, offer some of your hair. If you have, you know, just make sure that that reciprocity is being tended, that those offerings are being made. Even if it's just, you know, whatever you have is fine. It's, it's, you don't have to be all fancy about it. You know, if, Mm -hmm. if that's, if I have a little bit of saliva in your mouth, like that's fine, like whatever it is, but just to really track for the give back. Yeah. That's what I want to say about that. Mm -hmm. That piece of reciprocity and offering is so important. And I think when I learned about it, I didn't really understand how to ground that action of offering. And I think I thought it was more, yeah, I guess I didn't fully believe that 
it was real or something. And it took years of practicing and just going, okay, I'm going to do this and maybe I'll feel silly and maybe I'll feel like this isn't really connecting with this place. But time after time and year after year of sitting with it in the discomfort of breaking down my colonial white supremacist dominant culture conditioning and opening myself up and listening Mm. and doing those offerings time and time again, it's like, no, no, this is very real. (laughs) This is extremely connecting and so I love hearing you talk about it because it it just floods me with all of my my feelings and I'm wondering within this circle of reciprocity how are we fundamentally changed by our relationship with wild places and how are we open to the erotic and deepened in our capacity for unconditional love and just to make a note on this unconditional love word I honestly really didn't know what that was in an embodied way. I didn't understand it. I didn't grow up in a family that unconditional love was something that was given. And it wasn't until I was with the temperate rainforest and I fell so madly in love with this ecosystem, this place. And I remember the lust and the first, you know, honeymoon stage and I was just totally enraptured. And then the more that I spent time with the temperate rainforest as the drought came and I would walk around these forests, whether it was, you know, and they weren't all old growth, actually, most was not old growth. There's only 2% old growth left globally. So the old growth was very scarce. And I'd go into these second growth and these plantation forests. And I'd be like, you're not old growth. Like you're not what I fantasize about or my honeymoon phase is or, and now it's, and you're in drought and you're crunchy. And I remember having all of these feelings of rejection and it took me time to be like, no, no, I love you whether you are crunchy in your drought. I love you if you are plantation forested. I love you regardless of what we have done to you because I love you for you regardless of what you are to quote me. And when I shifted that and I could just feel so madly in love with the forest, with where they're at exactly at this moment, within climate change and the Anthropocene and so much raping and pillaging of them and their ancestors and to be able to to feel that type of depth of love that I'm not going anywhere regardless of what happens to you. I'm going to be by your side until the very end. The expansiveness of my chest even saying that is like nothing I've ever experienced in the human world. And And so this topic of unconditional love for wild places, but also places that were once wild and have been in so many ways abused so badly has been a a huge teaching in my life. So that's my own personal story around it. But yeah, I'd love to just hear you speak about the depth of capacity for unconditional love with wild places or just the earth in general. Mm. I feel blessed by to hear your description of falling in love. It's my sense that if we want wild love, what we need to learn is to receive wild love. And wild love isn't perfect. And the places aren't perfect, right? They're not, like when we fall in love with a human, we're not actually, for like the first six to 18 months, we're not actually in love with the person. We think we are. We're in love with our love. We're in love Mm -hmm. with the set of sensations that we're having in our bodies. We're in love with the fact that we can feel this way. We're not actually in love with the person. And so 
when we actually fall in love with a person, when we fall deeply, deeply in sustainable long-term love, it's knowing that they are a hot mess and that they're going to be a hot mess until they die. That's what my partner said to me once when I was telling him that I was such a hot mess. He said, yeah, I love you and you're going to be a hot mess till you die. Like that's unconditional love, right? And what can happen with the erotic when we go out into wild places that are not perfect, that have been harmed, that have been abused, is it can feel like if you open yourself, if you open yourself to that that really deep feeling, you're going to feel what has happened in that place, right? And that's hard. It's hard to feel that. It's hard to bear witness to it. It's and it's hard to um, acknowledge it. And so, you know, I mean, I think lots of folks can go and they can get turned on by the mating of the birds and the clouds in the sky. But like the kind of love that you're talking about, the unconditional love, it has to be inclusive of the whole situation. Like what is, yeah? It's like there has to be no fear about opening to what is because you trust your own resilience. You trust that I can erotically open to the aliveness of this place, no matter how harmed it is or to this person, no matter how messed up they are, I can open fully. I can be with whatever is true there, whatever has happened, whatever they're feeling like I can be with that. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to lose myself right? I'm not going to be um, swept away by that suffering, or I'm not going to be devastated and and thrown into endless grief. Like I might feel grief. You know, we, we need to feel grief. We need to be, I think that that's such an important connection actually between the erotic and grief of the willingness to feel grief and the willingness to feel grief about place, about relationship, about patriarchy, about oppression, the, like the willingness to feel that deep grief is actually the thing that makes it relational. Right? I'm not afraid of your pain. I'm not afraid of your suffering. I'm not afraid of your trauma getting on me somehow and tainting me. Right? I don't need this like this pure thing. I need the real thing. Yeah. And when we have that practice in place of like I'm practicing my resilience for the sake of wild love, for the sake of connection with you, person, place, universe. Right? I'm practicing my resilience. I'm practicing being okay. I'm practicing receiving. I'm practicing receiving pleasure. Right, I'm not letting myself stay in this brittleness, this fragility that comes from pain. Really, right? Like I can be, I can be in pain, and I can be flexible. I can be um, generous and generative with my body and with my heart and with my arrows. Like that's, I feel like, where that's that transcendent moment where you really belong and you're really not alone because like you are of, you are with, right? You've become the river, you've become the sky, you've become the the forest. And there's not this, I mean, I think this is what death is actually going to, this is what I'm praying for, you know, that my death is going to be like, of like, I'm just with now, there's no separation, you know, and that's, I mean, there's no separation and there doesn't need to be for this for any boundaries or safety like it's just okay to just surrender into this embrace
This feeling of comfort and belonging that you have just expressed is so deeply nourishing. And I feel like so many of us, if not all of us, are praying and striving and sometimes clinging for that type of connection with another. And yeah, I, I just, I'm thinking about our conversation today within the framework of belonging and belonging within the body in an erotic sense, belonging as an earth connection and belonging alongside ancestral or cultural kin. And I'm wondering how you're living within this inquiry of belonging as an ongoing practice or process. Yeah, this has been my primary practice recently. And what feels really exciting is that other people have figured some of this stuff out. There's like technologies and things that are written about it and cultural practices. And I feel like there's a lot in the cultural conversation right now about belonging. I'm reading um, Bell Hook's book, Belonging, which is so amazing, you know, and, and yeah. And so my practice is like, I, and again, it's, I talk about sexual liberation as a set of practices, right? It's not this like state that you get to like, woohoo, now I'm sexually liberated. It's like, oh no, I'm I'm a commitment to these practices. And I think that belonging is like that. You know, if I feel like I'm not belonging, if I feel that sense of disbelonging, it's on me to to practice something different, right? To be like, oh, okay, so this is what's happening right now. Okay, I'm going to do one of my belonging practices. I'm going to reach out to someone. I am going to go spend some time with my land. You know, I, that there's, there are things that we can actually do to increase that sense of belonging and that there's, there's personal things and there's also cultural things. There's group things, right? We can create communities of welcome. Uh, We can create like, oh gosh, I'm just thinking about when I, um, I took an improv class and one of the things that they taught us was like, so you, okay. They'd be like, Break up into groups of three. 
And so then you have to do it in like 10 seconds, like really fast. And if anybody is not in a group, you're like, come, 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 right? Like this, like over here, come with us, you know, and we can all practice that, right? And so like, if I'm feeling that sense of disbelieving that I can actually, I can become more inclusive. I can become more welcoming rather than, you know, kind of feeling bereft or feeling left out. I can, I can actually do things. So that's like really exciting to me about belonging, you know, that it's, it's something that we can tend to within ourselves and within our communities. And I think it's pretty exciting to think about belonging to a place, you know, trees belong to a place like that tree. It just picks where it's going to live. And then that's just its place, you know, and what is that like to make that commitment to a place and whether or not you are living in that place all the time, like you said, like I am with you, you're never going to leave those forests, right? Like even if you're on the other side of the world, you're with those forests, you belong to that place, you know where you belong. Yeah. And we can do that. We can cultivate those, those practices of, of belonging to particular places where we feel the home, the home feelings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's on us to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness, there's so much. And <laughs> I feel the same way almost after every time you pause because I feel like entire galaxies are expanding in my heart and in my mind of feeling so much complexity in myself and this longing to belong, this longing for unconditional love, this longing for a connection and a reciprocity that has been so stripped and in some ways stolen from our human experience. Maybe not in some ways, in multiple ways. And as our time together comes to a close, I'd love to hear more about how we might thread some of these practices of embodiment, deep listening and ancestral exploration into our lives. How can we tend to these sacred relationships with the self and kin? What portals whether that's plants, myths, storytelling, altars, animals, exist for creative animation in the everyday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, I think you just named a bunch of the practices, and they're, and they're going to be they're going to be so different. They're going to be so unique for each person, right? And like we talked about earlier, there are definitely things that your ancestors practice, like eat the foods your ancestors ate, do the things that they did. If they were like, if they spun wool, spin wool and see what happens. You know, I think that those, those are interesting kinds of things. I also just want to address practice itself. Practice gets a bad rap, uh, you know, from folks who have been through public school or been through music lessons or been through organized sports or organized religion that they hated, you know, then like you have to practice and practice half an hour a day. And, and so when we talk about practices, uh, when I talk about practices, I want to be just really careful to not further that you're not good as you are right now. You must do work to be good, you know? And one of my mentors, Richard Strozzi, says you're always practicing something when you get to choose what you practice, right? And, and so practices really don't have to be these monolithic things that you that you do or don't do or get resistant about doing a practice can appear in a moment right a practice can be just like one 
real breath or, or one true thing that you say, or you, some people do really well with structured practice, but other people just get, you know, especially the anarchist crew just get super resistant to it. Right. And so I think holding a different paradigm of practice in which like really small amounts of conscious practice will yield you excellent results. And you don't like to quote Mary Oliver, crawl on broken glass, right? You can just just have a practice, make it conscious and and listen for that thing that's right inside you at that moment. I really don't want this conversation to end. Being with you in this conversation is, in a way, it feels like I've been starving for this type of soulful food and talking to you is like the best buffet. <laughs> I don't know why I see it in terms of food. I'm not, I just had lunch, so I shouldn't be that hungry. But there's this, yeah, just this longing to be able to connect around these topics so deeply. And you have such a gentle but potent way of describing these themes that I, that are just so human. <laughs> They're so us. And I really appreciate all the work that you must have done to be able to sit with these themes in the ways that you do and be able to then share them with the world and with all of the things that you do through your podcast and through your teachings. And thank you so much for being the person you are. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from Itasca. I'd like to thank our team, Aidan McRae, Andrew Stores, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekram, Aaron Wise, Francesca Glassfell, Hannah Wilton, Melanie Younger, and Suzanne Dollywall. Thank you.